Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Quite an interaction between Jesus and and this young man. I would guess that if most of us were really honest with ourselves, we would admit that this young man is kind of living the life that we wish that we had. He was rich, we read, which you need to know in this culture, rich meant extremely rich. There really wasn't a middle class back then. So it was the poor, the peasant class, and the extremely rich who had tons of money. Not only that, but in Matthew's gospel, we learn that he was young, so he had youth on his side. A lot of people, if they ever become rich, achieve that after many years of hard work. And so by the time you have lots of resources, you don't really have a lot of energy and the blessings that come with youthfulness. But this man was young, very rich. Not only that, but he was powerful. Notice in verse 18, he was a ruler meaning that he had authority and he was a powerful young man. Perhaps the only thing that we would like to add to the list probably would be that you could also be handsome or beautiful. And maybe he was, we just don't know. He could have really genuinely had it all. I mean, what more would you want out of life? Money, power, all in your youth. This young man was poised for a life of luxury and ease, a life where he was in control, a life where he was able to call the shots, a life where he was, for all practical purposes, the master of his own destiny, the captain of his own fate, possibly a life of impact and significance. It was a dream. And yet, after attaining all of this, after having all of the things that most people would assume should satisfy a person, should give a person genuine meaning and purpose and drive in their life, he remained unsettled. And so he approaches Jesus, another young man, 
Jesus, as we know from the Gospels, was somewhere in his early 30s during his ministry. So it's one young man to another young man, a young man who had everything the world had to offer and yet was unsettled. Another young man, Jesus, who had none of the things that the world says you should have to be significant, to be somebody and to be satisfied and to be full of meaning. And yet Jesus' life was so full of peace and purpose. And this rich young ruler looks at Jesus and sees something so unique in him. And so he asks him the million dollar question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? AKA, how do I get to heaven? It's a great question. How do I get to heaven? How would you answer that question? If somebody came to you and said, how do I get to heaven? What would you say to them? See, all of us as Christians are called to the work of evangelism and all of us need to be prepared to answer that question because it's only a matter of time if you're really living out your faith and you're really trying to to live on mission for Christ that somebody's going to look at you, whether it's a child or a sibling or a parent or a co-worker or a neighbor, somebody's going to look at you and ask you as you're witnessing to them, okay, okay, I hear what you're saying. What do I need to do to get to heaven? We need to be ready for that. Jesus was ready. But notice that before he answered that question directly, he wanted to deal with another issue. He pushes back against something that this man said to him. This man said, good teacher, and then asked this question. And Jesus is going to stop for a moment. Because he really wants to draw something out of this young man. He says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, Jesus wanted this young man to stop and think about the implications of what he had just said. You need to know that the Jews restricted themselves from calling any other human being good. Because they believed that only God alone could truly be called good. God was the only one who was intrinsically good. Sure, some people could live better lives than others. There's no denying that. But there is no one who is absolutely good except for Yahweh himself. And so the Jews would never call another person good. Interestingly, we live in a culture that's flipped that. We basically think everybody is good. Right? We look at other people and say, they're they're a good person. I'm a good person. The Jews weren't like that at all. They had no problem seeing and understanding the, the innate and inherent deficiencies in human nature. That all of us have trouble keeping the law of God. They they knew that only God is truly good. And so Jesus says, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, young man, listen. Are you prepared to put me on the same level as God? I want you to think about that. Of course, Jesus should be put on the same level as God. Because ultimately, through his life, And his ministry, Jesus was going to demonstrate that he was actually God incarnate, God in human flesh, God with human nature. But he was pushing back to this young man. But now Jesus gets to his question. His answer is a pretty typically Jewish response. He says, keep the commandments. And then he lists several of them from the Ten Commandments. Says, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your parents, etc. This is where we all would have been toast, right? If Jesus said, Oh, you want to go to heaven? Well, keep the commandments. I don't know about you, but I would have said, Are you sure there's not another way? 
Is there a back door I can get into? Because I'm only 34, but I've broken a lot of those commandments already in my first 34 years, and I'm not really sure that I'm going to do much better in my next 34 years. We would have walked away from Jesus that day with no hope. But not this man. Look at, he says in verse 21, all these I have kept from my youth. And he probably had. I mean, this was a religious man. This was a man, he wasn't out partying, living a crazy lifestyle. He was, he was a man who was trying to live according to the Torah, according to the law of Moses. And he probably, for the most part, had kept these commandments. He wasn't out violating major commandments. He was a religious man. I want you to pause and think about that for a moment. I mean, yes, we already talked about how this young man had everything. He had power, he had money. He was probably really well known. But not only that, he was religious. He was deeply religious, and yet he was still unsettled. Oftentimes we think that religion is what somebody needs to really find meaning and purpose in their life, and yet this religious man still came to Jesus because there was still a void there. Religion in and of itself won't satisfy you. Religion in and of itself won't give you what you were actually created for. Because guess what? What you and I were created for was relationship. You and I were created to be in relationship with God. And until we get that fixed, our hearts will never be satisfied and we will never be fully settled in our lives. True religion, beyond being a jeans company, is a relationship with the God who made you and loves you. Augustine, a famous church father, put it this way, You made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It's great. It's true. God made us for himself. And until you get that fixed, friend, until you're in right relationship with God, your heart will never be settled. You'll never have the peace of God ruling in your life. You'll never have the joy that comes from relationship with God that, that remains permanent even when life circumstances get you sideways. And this is what Jesus is getting at with this young man. Jesus knew that the only thing that would truly satisfy him, the only thing that would satisfy his wandering heart was a relationship with the living God. And so, look what Jesus does. He presses him a little bit further. He basically says, you kept the law, huh? Okay, I'll give you that. But one thing you still lack, in verse 22. One thing you still lack. Now this should have made the rich young ruler leap for joy and be excited. Hold on, there's only one thing that I've got to do and I can be guaranteed I'll go to heaven? What is it, Jesus? Tell me anything you ask. I'll go do it. Do I need to go hike a mountain? Do I need to do some rituals? How long should I fast? What prayer do I need to pray? What's the one thing, Jesus, that I need to do to guarantee a spot in heaven? He should have been rejoicing. And maybe he was until Jesus told him what the one thing was. Jesus said, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. 
Oh, that? <laughs> hmm, can, can we try just one other thing? <laughs> Anything, Jesus, just not that. Is there maybe one other thing you can give me some other way I can earn God's favor here today and earn a spot in heaven? See, Jesus cut straight to the issue with this guy. The rich young ruler asked what he had to do to gain eternal life, and Jesus essentially responded, make me your greatest treasure. Make me your greatest treasure. Sell what you have, give the money to the poor, and follow me. Make me the Lord of your life. Become my disciple. Learn from me. Walk in my ways. This rich young man, like every person who hopes to have eternal life, was called by Jesus to be his disciple. And sadly, tragically, his response was to walk away sorrowful, and we're told the reason why. It was because he had great wealth. He was extremely rich. Now I know the question that's probably burning inside of all of us is, why his money and what about mine? Why did Jesus go after this man's money? And what implications does that have for me and my money? Does every single person have to sell all of their stuff to go to heaven? No. There was a pregnant pause there just to make everybody a little scared. What's he going to say? Does everybody have to sell everything that they have to get to heaven? We'll wait, we'll wait. No. Everybody's like, thank you, Jesus. In fact, if you go one chapter over in Luke 19, you'll see Jesus interacting with another rich man. His name's Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus sold half of his goods to pay back people that he had defrauded in his life. And evidently, him selling half of his possessions was fine by Jesus. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, in response to his repentance there, that salvation had come to his home that day. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus saying that this particular individual needs to sell every single thing that he has and follow after Jesus? Well, there might be several things going on. But for sure, the greatest issue is that Jesus evidently knew about the place that money had had in this man's life. See, the great sin of the rich young ruler wasn't so much his possessions as it was his passions. What I mean by that is that money had actually come to take a place in his life where it ruled his life. Jesus was revealing that although this young man might have kept the other commandments from his youth, guess what? He was actually violating the first and greatest commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus said in another place that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength. Love God with everything. Make God your everything. Let God be more important than anything and everything else in your life. And yet Jesus recognized that in this man's heart, there was something more important than God. There was an idol So Jesus gave him the opportunity of a lifetime. Jesus gave him a chance to throw down that idol right there in front of him and pick up his cross and follow after Christ on a trajectory toward eternal life. But he loved his money. 
When it came down to it, and choosing between his gold and God, he chose his gold. What he opted to do is go for his heaven now rather than God's heaven then. It's tragic. Warren Wearsby, the Bible teacher and great Bible commentator, noted this. He said, of all the people who ever came to the feet of Jesus, this man is the only one who went away worse than he came. It's crazy. He comes to Jesus. He's this close to eternal life. And Jesus gives him the opportunity. And he walks away sorrowful because he was extremely rich. So what about you this morning? What about me? Is there one thing in your life that if Jesus pinpointed that in your life and he said, that's the thing I want. That's the thing that is actually more important in your life than me. That's the thing that I want. What would your response be? Would it be to gladly lay down your idol, follow after Jesus, let him have everything in your life, let him have control? Or would your response be to walk away sorrowful? Because that thing is actually your God. Like this rich young man, it could be possessions. I mean, I wonder how many people have sat in church and they've heard about the financial need of somebody else. They've thought about their own situation and they've thought to themselves, I have what is necessary to meet that need, but, but, but hold on, I'm, I'm saving up for that MacBook Pro or I'm saving up for that boat or that RV or that kitchen renovation or whatever it is. I, I, I can't, I can't. No, I'm not going to meet that need right now. Could be career. <clears throat> How many men have sat in church and listened to stories of missionary work that was being done somewhere and God stirring up their hearts saying, you, you should be a part of that. God's calling you to that. And maybe they've heard about a church plant. They feel like God's calling them to that. They can, they can sense the Spirit stirring them up and they know it's going to be a lot of work and they lean over to their wife and they say in church, I, I feel like God's leading us there. And then they both look at each other and they say, yeah, but we've got the business. Things are really just taking off right now. We couldn't, we couldn't move to another city or another country right now or, or we've got the kids. They're in school right now. We can't pull them out of that. And it could be the kids. It could be family that prevents us from doing the things that God is calling us to do. Of course, it could be relationship. As a young adults pastor for a number of years, I often helped young adults navigate through the very murky waters of Christian dating and relationships. I can't tell you how many young people I've seen that have gotten involved with someone, stayed in a relationship with someone who was actually dragging them away from Jesus rather than pointing them toward Jesus and they kept that relationship and made that more important than being faithful to Jesus living their life in obedience to his word so they'd rather be unequally yoked with a non-believer than say no to that relationship and obey Jesus and patiently wait for a godly spouse. See, friends, it's easy for us to sit and judge the rich young ruler, to even pat ourselves on the back and 
think that we're doing okay as if you and I never, ever run the risk of putting God on the back burner of our life and making some other thing the most important thing in our life. But all of us in reading a text like this should be circumspect. All of us should analyze our own hearts, ask ourselves questions like this. Am I really at the service of Jesus? Is he really the one who fills my thoughts throughout the day? Is he really the song in my heart throughout the day? Is he really the one who, when he says go, I say yes, Lord. When he says jump, I say, come on, church, how high? (laughs) We all need to be asking these questions. For this rich young man, the answer was no. As he sorrowfully walks away, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples Let's reread verses 24 and 25. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now this is a challenging portion of scripture, one that confuses at times, of course, verse 25 is especially challenging, <clears throat> excuse me, for interpreters. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Every time I read it, I get all choked up. <clears throat> <clears throat> now, it's challenging because a camel is the largest animal on Palestinian soil. The eye of a needle is the smallest of openings. And so you've got Jesus here saying that it's easier for a big old camel like that to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. And everybody would have stopped and said, that seems impossible. So what does he mean here? Well, I've heard so many explanations of what this means. But you know, after everything that I've read and studied on it, here's what I think Jesus is trying to say. I think he's trying to say, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it would be for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, I think Jesus means what he says. Question, church. If we had the eye of a needle, and if we had a camel here this morning, with all of our effort, with all of our ingenuity, Do you guys think we could get the camel through the eye of the needle? I hope you're saying no. Otherwise, you know some things I don't know. But I don't think we could get a camel through the eye of a needle. Neither then can a rich person inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, even if this is hyperbole, even if Jesus is exaggerating, his point is still the same. Now, I know many of you are well-versed in the gospel, so this statement is not sitting well with you right now. Some of you are on the verge of jumping up and shouting, heresy, get that man down from there. Is Jesus teaching that going to heaven has to do with how much money you have? He's certainly not. Let me explain. The Jews believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing on your life. It meant that you had God's favor. He had given you these earthly possessions because of some goodness in you. 
And the Jews also believed that salvation could be earned through obeying the life, or obeying the law rather, and living a life of good works. This is what Paul actually is writing against in Romans chapter 3 and 4. He's arguing against the Jews saying you actually can't earn salvation through good works. Well, one form of good works is giving alms. Alms were basically gifts of, cho- of charity. They were donations that you made to the poor, to people that are in need. They were things like food handouts or other donations. So with this kind of mindset, it would follow that the more money I have, the more alms I could give, meaning the more good works I could accumulate, meaning the more likely it is that I go to heaven. You see how that works? So in the Jews' minds, what they would think is that a rich person is much closer to the kingdom of God than a poor person. You can understand then the reaction of the disciples in verse 26 when they say, then who can be saved? Or in Matthew's gospel, it says, they were greatly astonished. Right? They're looking at Jesus saying, if the rich can't even get to heaven, then what hope is there for people like us, the poor? And here's Jesus' answer, verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What a great verse. Salvation is impossible for man and only possible with God. In other words, Jesus is teaching what Paul would go on to teach at great length in his epistles that salvation will never come to you through human effort. It'll never come to you through obeying the law. It'll never come to you through pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It'll never come to you through giving away lots and lots of money or doing lots of good works, although we should do those things. That will never get you salvation. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor this morning. Smart or unintelligent, uneducated or educated, you can't earn it. See, friends, Jesus is just one more time teaching us through this man the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that salvation is a gift from God. Only he has the power to save. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you are not a Christian because you've earned it. You are not a Christian because you crossed some threshold of goodness and God looked at you and said, now you have done it. Good work. Now you can enter into heaven. No, 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 no. Church, if you're a Christian here this morning, it's because you've been saved by God's grace. Because you've turned away from yourself and you've turned to Jesus as the only one who can save you. Here's what Paul would later write in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is what Jesus meant back in verse 17, which we didn't read, but it gives context to this teaching where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How does a child receive anything? Do your children 
earn the good things that come from you? Like parents or grandparents, when you have the family over for a meal, after you feed the family, do you pass out the bill? (laughs) Well, you had steak today. That's going to be a little bit more expensive. Venmo me some cash before you leave, kids. Now, parents, when your children are really young, do your kids earn it? Do they earn food from you? Do they earn clothing? Do they earn the trip to the zoo or wherever you went? Of course not. But they do receive it. They just receive it by faith. They expect that these things are going to be provided for them by a good father or a good mother. And that's how you receive. That's how you inherit the kingdom of God. It's like a child. It's freely receiving a good gift that has come down to you from your loving father. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever works really hard, wait, wait, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, the rich young ruler came to Jesus on this day thinking that there was some good deed he could do. Some work that he could perform that would secure eternal life, that would guarantee that he would spend eternity with God. And Jesus taught him That it's not about your own goodness. It's about turning away from other things in your life and following after Him. It's about making Jesus Lord of your life. You cannot earn salvation. So all that's clear for the disciples now. It's all straightened out. Okay. Rich young ruler didn't get it right. Walked away, chased after his riches. But Peter's still not totally understanding the lesson because look what he does. He's the spokesman for the disciples and he speaks up in verse 28. And what does he say? See, Jesus, we've left everything for you. Still an earning mentality. He's like, okay, that guy walked away. He didn't pass the test, but I'm not going to make this mistake. Hey, Jesus, check it out. Me and the other guys, we left everything for you. We're out here traveling around on these dusty roads with you. We're trying to scrounge for meals. We don't have a lot of clothing. And in in Matthew's gospel, we learn that he even added this statement. Peter said, what then will we have? Kind of childish a little bit. Hey, Jesus, we did it right. We did everything you asked. What are we going to get out of this? What are we going to get? Rather than rebuking Peter, Jesus just continues to demonstrate patience with them. After all, Peter had left his things and he was following after Christ and Jesus was going to form in him a fully mature disciple one of these days. But rather than rebuking him, Jesus does something great. He offers him a wonderful promise and it's a promise to you and me by extension. Look at verse 29 again. No one, Jesus says, no one, not you, not me, who leaves possessions or loses relationships, for his sake will ever suffer loss. Instead, get this, Jesus says that whatever you sacrifice in following him will be repaid a hundred times. Y'all are going to have to check this in the Bible because you're going to think I'm lying. Will be repaid a hundred times here in this life. Okay, not just kind of Fairy tale thinking, hope so thinking, someday Jesus is going to pay me back. He says you're going to get repaid a hundred times in the here and now, and you will receive life to come. So he's talking about a temporal payback and an eternal 
reward for the things that we sacrifice for Jesus. Church, so often when people think about following Jesus, they think about it in terms of what we have to give up. Man, Jesus is saying, I got to let this go. I got to let that go. And, And we should think about that. That's a big part of it. Jesus calls us to sacrifice things, things like sin, misery, dysfunction. And Jesus says, lay all that stuff aside. But we also should think about in following Jesus what we gain because the reward is great. Think about what Jesus was offering to this rich young ruler. Jesus was offering him the opportunity of a lifetime. A chance to be one of his disciples. To be welcomed into the fold and actually walk and learn from the very Son of God. What an amazing opportunity he had. Jesus was giving him the privilege of a lifetime. And of course, we can look back with hindsight now, and hindsight is 2020, and we look back and go, oh, what an idiot. He blew it. He could have walked with Jesus, he could have witnessed all of the miracles. Because we know exactly who Jesus is. And we know how amazing this opportunity would have been. And so we can sit now with hindsight. We can look back and say, man, he missed out. God's plan is better. God's plan is better than his would have been. But friends, the same is true for us. When Jesus is calling us to surrender when Jesus is calling us to make him Lord, even though we don't know how our life will play out, we can trust and believe that his path is going to be better. That that the things that will come to us as a result of making Jesus Lord are going to far outweigh whatever you would have done apart from Christ. He calls this man to give up earthly possessions, to gain heavenly ones, to sacrifice worldly glory, for an eternal weight of glory. And so it is for us. Now as we close, I want to address one thing because I know some of you are going, Pastor, I've been a Christian a long time. I don't know about the whole hundred, hundred times being paid back in this life. What do you mean by that? What does Jesus mean by that? Maybe you've sacrificed a lot of money for the kingdom and you're like, shouldn't I be like a billionaire by now kind of a hundred times what I've given, if I'm doing the math right here, at least I should be a multimillionaire probably. What's going on, Jesus? How does this actually play out in real life? Well, here's how it plays out. When somebody steps out of their old life, somebody steps out of the world and steps into the family of faith, oftentimes they leave friends, maybe even family in some cultures, lose possessions oftentimes in some cultures. When they step away from all of that, they step into a brand new world. And guess what? In the church, they find a brand new family, a brand new sphere of friends and relationships which are more in number and better in quality than anything they've ever had before. I remember when I got saved, I read this text, and I wondered to myself, Is this actually going to be true for me? Because I had a lot of friends before I became a Christian. I was in a committed relationship for years with a girl before I became a Christian. And I remember letting all of that go because that was all bringing me away from Jesus and following Jesus. And I thought, man, I went from having people to hang out with like anytime I wanted to, to not having anybody to hang out with now. 
Is this going to be true for me, Jesus? Are, am I really going to be repaid for these things? And I remember so quickly on, God was so gracious and he started surrounding me with a community of people that loved me. People that would actually hang out with me. People that wanted to spend time with me. And before I knew it, in a handful of years, in my church family, I had more people to hang out with than I had time to hang out with them. It was amazing. I was able to step into a new family and a new network of relationships. One of the most common things I hear from new visitors about apostles, besides how great my hair is, of course, is how warm and loving the community is here. How even as a first-time visitor, I'll have people come up to me afterward and say, I had so many people come up to me and introduce themselves to me and shake my hand and tell me they were glad I was here. And they even asked me questions about my life, which I'm not used to. And people, people feel the warmth and the love in our church here. And family, no matter how much this church grows in the future, we can never lose that. We have to be the type of church that when people walk in, we see them, we notice them, we value them, we love them, and we start to include them into our family and into the things that we're doing, into our relationships, inviting them into your life and into your sphere. When people walk into the church, they ought to be walking into a family. All of those really fleshly things that happen in the world where people have their own clique and they exclude, those things should not exist in the family of God. Every person no matter how similar they are to you, no matter how different they are from you, ought to be somebody that you're saying, hey, come sit with me. Hey, let's go get lunch after church. Hey, let's hang out for the fourth. Hey, let's spend time together. And I love that that happens here all the time. Every single week I hear these stories. So when people come to our church, again, they should be loved. They should be welcomed. Shoot, you might even want to throw a Christian side hug on them. Maybe even greet them with a holy kiss. No, never mind. That was a different culture. We shouldn't do that. But show them love in this church every single time. So that's part of how this works. People leave the world. They leave old relationships and God gives them brand new ones through you. But not only that, in the church, they find a new pool of resources that they never had access to before. See, the, the mantra of the world is that you're on your own. You're on your own. You've got to figure it out for yourself. You've got to make it work on your own. But in the church, when somebody struggles, when somebody is in need, they should be able to come to another brother or sister in Christ and receive help, whether that's a roof over their head, whether that's food, whether that's clothing, whether that's money. And what I love, again, about our church is already, with how young this church is, we're seeing examples of this, where people are meeting one another's needs and they're fulfilling this promise of Jesus right before our eyes, and it is so beautiful. You guys ready to close? Let's close this thing. I'm ready to close. I'm going to have to pull out a holy hanky in about two more minutes and start dabbing my forehead. So let's close. In closing, the great challenge for all of us in this passage of Scripture is to trust Jesus when He promises that He is of greater value than anything or anyone in our lives. And really, church, that is the great challenge of our faith every single day of our lives. We cannot receive this message enough. We constantly have to examine ourselves and say, is there something that's starting to take the place? Is there something that's crowding out my affections for Christ? 
And if so, what do I do to fix that? How do I continue to turn my attention back on Jesus and give him priority in my life? Because none of us will get this perfect. But the goal of the new man or the new woman who is in Christ is that we keep striving to keep Jesus on the throne. And that's right where he should be, amen? Because only Jesus can reconnect us to our Father in heaven and only Jesus can connect us to the family of God on earth. And therefore, his name is the name above all names. Therefore, his name truly is a beautiful name. So we're going to close now in prayer. We're going to close by continuing to worship Jesus because he alone is worthy of your heart's affection and my heart's affection. Amen.